0: Let's pray together. Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Jeremiah called it a hammer. I pray, Lord, that your word would conform us to the image of Christ tonight a little bit more. That you would walk us a little farther down the path of maturity in Christ, of sanctification, of growth in grace and the knowledge of the truth. That the spirit that inspired these words would illuminate them to our understanding and apply them to our hearts and change our lives. And that you would use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way the Lord Jesus. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would direct your attention to Acts chapter 6. I want to read the first seven verses and then look particularly at verse 3. Let me remind you that we believe the Bible is the word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint, Against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, "It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom." whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away, but this is God's word. It will not fade. It will abide forever and forever. And so our text is verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. From time to time, you uh, elect uh, and ordain and install officers here in this church. And uh, the point of my message is to basically uh, help increase the knowledge and understanding of that process And the purpose for tackling this process or or topic or the reason is that in general, speaking broadly, the health and the faithfulness of this congregation and all true churches of Christ depends on a growing number of qualified, committed officers. Your pastor cannot do everything that needs to be done, nor is he called to do everything that needs to be done, The role of the elders and the deacons is vital in the plan and purposes of God for Emmanuel's Reformed Church, and as I said, for every true church. So let me make a few uh, preliminary comments about the passage, and uh, then I want to dig in particularly at this verse 3. You can tell in verse 1 that the church at this point in its history is growing. When the number of the disciples was multiplying, and in general, growing churches attract the attention of the prince of darkness, and the devil hurls fiery darts at growing churches to try to mess things up so they won't grow. And that's what happened here. There's a problem because the the uh, there's a complaint against the Hebrews. That's the Jewish Christians, people of Hebrew ethnicity. Uh, by the Hellenists, that is the people of Greek ethnicity. So they are Christians that have come from a Greek background, some that have come from a Hebrew or Jewish background, and one group saying our widows are not getting their due uh, in the diaconal care, what we would call diaconal care of the church. And so the future growth of this church, to a certain extent, I think depends on their handling this problem. And what happens? They handle the problem, and at the very end of the passage, then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why does he mention the priests were obedient to the faith? Because the priest in the Old Testament uh, economy had a lot to do with what we call diaconal ministries. And I think that these priests were impacted uh, by what was done, and, and handling this, um, they're, they're, the church continues to grow. A couple of other points, and then I want to just dig into the text phrase by phrase, okay? I realize, and all commentators that I've looked at realize, that the words elder and deacon are not in this text. Uh, it talks about the, uh, the apostles or the, and the number of the disciples, Uh, But most, if not all, interpreters believe that this passage lays out a a division of labor between what we call elders and what we call deacons. There's a difference of, of mission, yes, and this lays out that difference. And I think that's right, even though the words elder and deacon are not mentioned here. I don't think, however, that the qualifications for elder and and deacon are nearly as different as the mission uh, difference between elders and deacons. So I think if you uh, know what a Venn diagram is, if you don't ask your uh, junior highs in the church, okay? But if you said, here are the qualifications for elder, and here are the qualifications for deacon, there's an overlap. And this text, I think, fits in that overlap for what is required of both elders and deacons. And there are various ways to show that, but I don't want to take the time to do that. So I think this passage in verse 3 talks about that overlap of qualifications. And so that said, let's look at it. First thing, seven men. Why seven? I don't think we know. I could speculate, but this is not a day for speculation, and I'm just going to pass over that. Pastor Joling probably knows the answer to that, and you can ask him after the service, okay? Men, I will say something about that, okay? It appears that God has limited the offices of elder and deacon to men. 1 Timothy 3, when you have the qualifications for elder and the qualifications deacon for deacon following that, when they are given, it's written with the assumption that they will be men. This says choose seven men. And the men, the people that are chosen in Acts 6 are all men. Now the church today, very broadly speaking, I'm not talking about the URC or even the PCA of which I'm a part, though the PCA struggles with this. But broadly speaking in an, in an evangelicalism today, there's a lack of clarity on this issue of, of, of men and the offices of elder and deacon being exclusively uh, for men. Um, Is the church today following the culture? Is the church today taking what the culture thinks and trying to read it back into the scriptures? I think the answer is clearly yes. A pastor in the Portland metro area told me that to him it would be unfathomable to ask a woman who was in leadership at a place like Intel to be to be a part of their congregation and not be in leadership. Well, maybe so. But what about the Bible? Without lengthening this message to give you all the details, let me say that I believe that the scriptures clearly teach uh, that the offices are for men and that the disputed text can be handled satisfactorily. If you can move from I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man to I do allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, then your method of biblical interpretation will allow you to change any clear teaching of Scripture, no matter how fundamental. Women have many gifts, God-given gifts and abilities, which should be used in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible teaches that only men are to be ordained to office. Seven men. Secondly, men of good reputation. Now what this literally means, um, the root word of good of good reputation, uh, means to be a witness of, or a martyr. The Greek word, you can hear it in the word martyr. The Greek word is martyreo marturetto, martyr, yeah, it sounds like the same thing, similar thing. Uh, it, so it means to be a witness or a martyr. And literally, this word means to be of good report, either a report you give or a report about you. In this context, it's a report about these candidates for office. And it means that the person can be vouched for on the basis of direct observation. A person has witnessed the person, the life, and can, on the basis of that personal witness of what the person is like, vouch for them that they are a quality candidate, Might you might say. It's not what you've heard about this person, not hearsay testimony, but what you've seen, what you witnessed, what you can personally attest to. Now, what this phrase and text is often mean in churches is, well, it means everybody thinks well of them. Or it means they're almost perfect, right? I mean, some of you thought that when you were nominated. Well, it can't mean that. It can't mean that everyone thinks well of them, and I'm going to tell you why it can't mean that. Because witnesses to Jesus in the early church... Think Peter and John in Acts 4 that are whipped by the authorities and told, don't you speak anymore of Jesus and the resurrection. They said, we're going to do it anyway in so many words. Think of Paul in Acts 17 where he's preaching before the philosophers at Mars Hill in Athens. And he tells them about the resurrection from the dead and they laugh at him and they mock him and they think he's a nut. Think of Jesus Christ. Did everybody think well of Jesus Christ? Wasn't he accused of being demon-possessed? Having a, an evil spirit? Isn't it the case? If I said to you, why did Jesus get crucified? Because they, they said, well, this guy a he's a fraud. He's an imposter. He's claiming to be God. He can't be God. Let's kill him. Okay, they did And I don't think Jesus was disqualified because not everybody liked him, okay? There are many other places you find things like this. Well, what does it mean? It can't mean that everybody thinks well of them. Well, it means that the public report about them is good in regard to their honesty and their integrity, their morality, and things like that. You will remember about Daniel, Daniel that we talked about, that Daniel's in exile, and they're trying to get Daniel in trouble. And they they observe his life. And they say about Daniel in chapter 6, verse 5, we shall not find any ground for complaint or accusation against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So Daniel is so following the, the scriptures, he's so following the law of his God, the people are saying, well, We we may find fault with with the law of God, but not with the man. The man's following it so much. Hmm. Over the course of four plus decades of pastoral ministry, it's fair to say that the most frequent reaction that I have heard to a verse like this, uh, seven men of good reputation, when I've had people that were nominated for office, and I would go and speak to those men nominated to office, they would begin by saying, well, you know, pastor, I don't think I'm qualified. And what they meant by that was, I don't think I'm good enough. And my inward reaction, sometimes my outward reaction, actually, was to be, was something like this. Well, we're off to a good start here. I like that attitude. Because in my view, the most qualified often saw themselves as being the least qualified. And those who thought of themselves as the most qualified were, in fact, the least qualified. Hmm. Why was that the case? Well, there are many possible reasons, but the one I want to focus on is this. A shallow understanding of biblical requirements. And I can hope I can help as we move to my third point. Men full of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're about to get nervous that a Presbyterian pastor is going to come into a Reformed church and tell you how to be filled with the Spirit or something like that, just relax. We're not going to go there, okay? Um, um, What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? There's a lot of confusion about that, right? Right? Because there are people in the broad evangelical world said, "Well, you can tell if somebody's filled with the Spirit because they'll speak in tongues," and 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 that is not true. Um, that'll become clear as I develop the point. But for now, let me say that that Paul says not all speak in tongues. In another place, he says tongues will cease, um, and and so it, it's clearly he's not saying. Well, you've got to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit. That's the proof you're filled with, filled with the Spirit. And it's not also, and this is probably um, more, I think, to the point. We'll get uh, clearer in just a minute about this. They don't talk about Somebody's filled with the Spirit is not necessarily talking about the Holy Spirit all the time, okay? Okay, so you've given some negatives, Alan. Give us some positives. How do, how do I tell if someone is full of the Spirit? Okay, well, I wish it was as easy as, you know, if, if I said, is your car full of oil? You go out there and lift the hood and you pull out the dipstick and you say, now nah, you're quart low or you're half a quart low or you got a little too much in there or something like that. Not nearly that easy, right? What does it mean? Well, the word for full here, listen carefully, because what I'm about to talk about covers not only this, but some other, another category of, of, of verses um, uh, for instance, uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, in the old King James, it says, You are complete in him. You are complete in him. What does it mean to be complete? This, what I'm about to say, has to do with verses like that as well as, as, as this verse, okay? So the word for full here, pleres, can mean complete or full grown or mature or covered over or lacking in nothing, or perfect. Now, when we hear the word perfect in, in the what we call the Western culture, when you hear the word perfect, here's what many of us think about. It. it may be that because I've got an engineering background, this is why I think this way, but I don't think it's just me. If you ask a seventh grader who took a math test and got everything right, he or she would be said to have made a, perfect score on the test. Nothing wrong at all, right? And that's true, and that's a good way, a legitimate way, an okay way to use the word perfect, but it's not the only way to use it, and it can be confusing when you're thinking about men who are nominated for office. Let me tell you another way you can think of this word, this Greek word. Uh, for those in the ancient Near East, the ordinary way they would think of this word is something like this. Now, do you remember, if you, some of you would have books at home of, of birds, like birds of the Pacific Northwest. And in that book about birds, it would have, uh, say, a certain type of bird. If I'd done a little more research for, research for this sermon, I'd name one or two, but I can't do that. That's okay. So, it, it shows, so you turn to this page in the book on, on birds uh, and it says, here, here's, here's the adult and here's the juvenile or the adolescent bird of that species. And they'd be the same bird, but the juvenile is really different from the adult, the mature. And this would be said to be a perfect specimen of this kind of a bird. Oh. Now, if you said, is that bird, so if you see one in the wild and you say, oh, that's a perfect specimen of whatever. Does that mean that there's no way that that bird could be improved upon in any way, that every feather and every nuance about that bird is right and as right as it could ever be, and that one is the best one in the universe? No. Doesn't mean that at all. It just means it's a mature version of that. That's all it means. Same thing if you look out today at daffodils, you know. Oh, this is a perfect daffodil. Well, it doesn't mean it's the very best daffodil in the, in, in the county or the state. It just means it's a perfect specimen of a daffodil. It's a good specimen. There are lots of other good specimens out there, of a daffodil, that's what this is. So in this sense of perfect, the word means mature, a mature bird, a mature daffodil, a mature man, a man mature in Jesus Christ. And I think that's how we should think of being full of the Holy Spirit. This man is a mature example of someone who evidences the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's great, Alan, but what does that look like? What does a life that is mature and evidences the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit look like? Well, now we've taken this, this, this filled with the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, and we've shut it down to something manageable. And what's manageable now, we can just ask the question, what does the Holy Spirit do? What is his ministry? What is his purpose? Do we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit evident in this man's life? Let's go quickly through them. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? First of all, the Spirit guides us into the truth. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Well, He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So a man full of the Holy Spirit is a man who will love the Bible, believe the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible, seek to obey and use the Bible. He will know the confession and the catechism and the canons. No one, who, no one does those things apart from the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So you don't have to go off and do this esoteric about do they, do, they, do they have seances or do they speak in tongues? or do, do they love the word of God? Are they devoted to the word of God? Do they read the word of God? Secondly, the spirit glorifies Jesus. John 16 again. He will glorify me. Well, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the job of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus, not to himself. That's what gets me uh, so upset when I'm around my charismatic friends. They think, well, I'm supposed to be talking about the Holy Spirit all the time if I'm filled with the Spirit. And I say, no! The ministry of the Spirit is to point people to Jesus Christ. And a person filled with the Spirit will be talking about Jesus Christ as the God-man and the Redeemer of God's elect. He does not glorify himself. He does not point people to himself. He points people to Jesus Christ. That is his role. A man full of the Holy Spirit will make much of Jesus in the gospel. He will love Jesus' person and depend on his work. He will not be talking constantly about the Spirit, but about Jesus who sent the Spirit. Thirdly, the Spirit sanctifies. He causes us to gradually grow in grace. Again, John 16. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 2 Thessalonians 2. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. And belief in the truth. And of course, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self control. A man full of the Holy Spirit regularly repents and seeks to live a life of holiness. He's not a perfect man, but he is an example of maturity in the things of God. Fourthly, the Spirit assures us of our adoption. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, Romans 8, Galatians 4. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit will fill a man and the man will be confident that God is his Father and rejoice in all the privileges of being an adopted child of God. Fifthly, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, is the spirit of prayer. Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So the man filled with the Spirit will be a man of prayer. He will realize that he's not independent, but dependent, and you'll be able to tell it by being around him. How to tell if a person is filled with the Spirit? Look at what the ministry of the Spirit is, that the Word of God, the person of Jesus, sanctification, adoption, things like that. Uh, those are the things that tell us. Is this a Batur example of someone who lives like that? A man full of the Holy Spirit and men full of wisdom. This is my last main point, men full of wisdom. Now, here, again, in the West, if you think of... Uh, Somebody that's wise, um, uh, it, it, things differ here, but I, I, I was talking to somebody about uh, a, a certain person, doesn't need to be named, uh, and, and he said, he's smart. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, no wonder you think that, he's got a beard, you know, and, and people have beards, you got to have a beard to be smart, you know what I mean? Todd, we need to quit shaving, you know what I mean? We'll gain some ground that way. No, I'm kidding. So what do we think? Of a man with a beard, wearing a robe, sitting on a rock, or standing behind a lectern, speaking with big words to star-struck groups of listeners. A guru. A wisdom. man full of wisdom. In the ancient Near East, that was not what wisdom meant. Um, Aristotle, of course, was 400 years before Jesus, but... But, but a man of wisdom was a man of action. Really? Yes, yeah, so they would say a, a, a wise man was a man that knew what to do in certain situations. Uh, yes, he knew the truth, but he also practiced the truth. If you said to, to the ancients, well, he knows the truth, he just doesn't live like it. They would say, well, he's not a wise man. I mean, wisdom was not just knowledge, it was knowledge put put into action. He practiced the truth. He knew what to do. He knew how to help the poor without hurting the poor. He knew how to help orphans and widows in their distress. That fits so wonderfully in this context in Acts 6 because they got this diaconal ministry of helping uh the widows in a daily distribution and the Greeks and the Hellenist uh, I mean the Hel- the Greeks and the and the Jewish uh ethnicity groups are going at one another and so they said well look you need to elect men of wisdom you need to elect men that know what to do that men how to handle the problem so we can be freed up for the ministry of the word in prayer and they did and of course the church kept growing wow If you're an elder or deacon, I hope that in brief outline, this gives you some of the things that you should continue to focus on. And I hope my exposition will help you get over the spiritual rubby grubs that Satan lays upon you because you're not yet perfect. Of course you're not perfect. If you thought you were, you would not be qualified at all. You are to be mature and maturing and maturing. Secondly, if you aspire to office but are not yet there, I hope this brief outline gives you some of the things you should focus on, the word, the gospel, sanctification, assurance, prayer. Thirdly, if you're a member who must vote on those men put before you, then I hope that you have at least the beginnings of what will guide you to make wise decisions about the men that are put up for office. And lastly, if you're not yet a Christian, please know that if you desire to become a Christian or to live like one, it will take the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. In 1 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul said, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can put off the old and put on the new without the aid of the Holy Spirit. But with, and I'm saying this to non-Christians as well as Christians, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, all things are possible. All things are possible. The dead can be made alive. And those who are at one level of maturity can press on to another. You know, in 1 in, in, uh, in Thessalonians, Paul writes to that church in and he said, look, I, I, I want you to excel still more. He uses that language in some of the translations, excel still more. And then the second, trans, second Thessalonians, he writes to them and says, look, I wrote you in my former letter that you should da-da-da, and you should grow more and more. And he said, and you're doing it. Mature and maturing is the, is the way to think about it. And you can be assured of God's success in that, because Why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to conform you to the image of Jesus. And I know some of you, like me, you look in the mirror, spiritually or literally, and you think, he's going to make me like Jesus. You know, that that blows your mind, doesn't it? Ladies, men, does that blow your mind? You think of who you are, and you think of how far that's got to happen. You think, I could never do that. No, you couldn't. But the Holy Spirit of the living God can do that. This is the good news. God gives the Holy Spirit to unworthy sinners who ask and seek. And those who ask and seek can be assured that they will find. Despair not, little flock. God desires to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand you and your ways with your people. Help us to understand the scriptures. To understand what men are full of the spirit and wisdom look like. Lord, I pray that I would be more like that. Pastor Joling and the elders and deacons here would be more like that. And the future elders and deacons would be more like that. And that we would take no glory for ourselves, but give it all to you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.